0: Hi, everyone. Thank you, as always, for staying tuned for updates from the team in regards to the Starve Rock murders case. We are still actively fighting to prove Chester's innocence and will continue to drop bonus episodes and case updates as things unfold. But separately, I'm super excited to share with you a new type of episode of the Andy Hale podcast that is different from the ones that cover a particular case, like the Starve Rock murders, we're going to be releasing episodes of wrongful convictions and cold cases, and I'm thrilled to share these with you. In these episodes, I'm going to be discussing a variety of wrongful conviction and true crime cases with some interesting people with a new person or topic in each episode. These will be standalone episodes, which I hope garner your interest as much as the Star of Rock Murders episodes have. And we've enjoyed doing so much together. We've got some fascinating guests lined up, many of whom you will recognize from the headlines as well as famous cases if you're a true crime fan. And if you're listening now, I bet you are a true crime fan. These wrongful convictions and cold case episodes will give you a chance to hear about these captivating cases from someone who was involved with them in some way. A definite insider's view, so to speak. In this first episode, I sit down with Gilbert King, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Devil in the Grove, and the host and creator of the phenomenal Bone Valley podcast that tells the story of the wrongful conviction of Leo Schofield who was convicted of murdering his wife and has spent over 30 years in prison. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. We've got a lot to talk about. Let's begin. On February 24th, 1987, 18-year-old Michelle Schofield left her job as a waitress at Tom's restaurant in Lakeland, Florida. She made $13 in tips that night. She called her husband, 21-year-old Leo, and made plans to pick him up at a friend's house. She never showed up. Two days later, Michelle's car was found abandoned on the side of I-4 and State Road 559. The next day, her body was found in a canal in a wooded area seven miles from her car. She had been stabbed multiple times. Despite the fact that there was no physical evidence linking Leo to the crime, he was charged with his wife's murder based largely on the testimony of a neighbor who claimed to have heard a commotion in the Schofield's trailer that night and then claimed to see Leo emerge carrying a heavy object. Wrapped in something. Leo was subsequently convicted and sentenced to life in prison. But did Leo Schofield really murder his wife Michelle? The case took a dramatic turn when years later fingerprints found in Michelle's car were matched to a man named Jeremy Scott who had a violent past including murder. At the time of Michelle's murder, Jeremy was 18 and live with his grandmother in a trailer less than two miles from the canal where Michelle's body was found. Jeremy Scott would later offer a hair-raising confession to Michelle's murder to Gilbert King, an investigative reporter covering the case. Despite Jeremy's confession and his fingerprints being found in Michelle's car, the prosecutor's office has continued to assert that they got the right guy in Leo Schofield 36 years after his wife's murder, Leo Schofield remains in prison and his attempts at parole to date have all been denied. Gilbert King, I am so excited to sit down and talk with you. Uh, I can't even tell you. Thank you for coming on this podcast. And I was checking out your bio. You know, you and I have a few things in common. Oh, let's hear. Both born in 1962. Okay. Sorry, I'm dating us there, but. That's all right. Both born on the 22nd day of the month. Okay. Both have lived in Florida for some period of time. And both have a French bulldog. How about that?
1: Oh, uh, mine's dead, unfortunately. Oh, but. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, he died a few years ago, but um, that gets yes. brought up in some bios every once in a while.
0: Yeah. I'm usually wearing a jacket. <laughs> I'm like, well, I still have some of his hair on me, so he's still around, I guess. So uh, I definitely want to, you know, primarily talk about Bone Valley, but let's just pause. Sure. I know you grew up in New York. Uh, I did see that you went to college at University of South Florida. Was that in Tampa? Yes, I was in Tampa. So what took you from New York to Florida and then back to New York?
1: I went to college. I I wanted to be a baseball player and they had a really good baseball school.
0: Yeah. That didn't work
1: out too well for me down there. (laughs) Uh, you know, you come from New York and these guys are playing year round and they they were a very good school at the time. And I just realized like, this was a big mistake. I'm not going to play with these guys. They're just too much better. So I had to uh, do plan B basically. And, uh, I started actually like going to the library a lot and, uh, reading and I, I became an English major. Shortly before graduating, like t- two credits short of graduating, I just left and decided to move to New York um, and didn't, didn't graduate from college. And I tried to take these, it was only two math credits is what I needed. And uh, I tried to take these CLEP tests to get to, pass, I couldn't pass those.
0: So I said, <laughs> all right, this is not in my future. I'm not going to be doing math. <laughs> you know, your plan B was exactly my plan B. My dad actually played professional baseball. Oh. And, and you would appreciate this being a New Yorker. My dad played on the 1961 New York Yankees World Series team. You're kidding me. Yes. Oh, we, my Lord. I've got his World Series Yankees ring at home. I look at it every day. Um, That's
1: an amazing story. Wow. Yeah, I, I yeah. love that. <laughs> and
0: 61. so it's funny is my dad passed about 10 years ago, but he always felt like, you know, I went to law school. He was so proud of that. Like, oh, yeah. And, and like, like what I did was more impressive than what he did. I'm like, are you kidding me? You played professional baseball, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, know. I would trade for, oh my God, in a heartbeat. But <laughs> he would always come to my trials, would, you know, was very proud. Oh, that's very cool. So let me ask you this. The first big thing I saw, you know, is your book, Devil in the Grove, which I just ordered today on Amazon, oh, wow. by the way. Yeah. Tell me what it's about and tell me what kind of caused you to write it.
1: I had been doing a lot of research in, in Louisiana at the time, and, and it was a, a, a death penalty case back in 1946. And as I was going through the files, I saw a letter from Thurgood Marshall, and he was basically advising these young lawyers how to win this case. And I just thought to myself, what is Thurgood Marshall doing with a death penalty case in Louisiana? He's not even the the representative. He's not the defense counsel. He's just giving them advice. And uh, I remember thinking, like, after I saw that letter, I said, "What else was Thurgood Marshall up to?" Because I really didn't know. I knew, you know, I knew he'd done like Brown versus Board, these landmark civil rights cases, and you know, later become a Supreme Court justice. But I didn't know that he was doing like criminal work. And so I, I went back to New York, and I said, "I'm going to go down to Washington and look through his files." And I I was in looking through his files at the Library of Congress, and I saw this one letter, and it was from um, a, a lawyer in Florida, in Groveland, Florida, and it was written, and it said. Thurgood, we need help immediately. This is the most dangerous place we've ever been. Um, we're we're constantly threatened. Our lives are at stake. Send reinforcements. Call the Department of Justice. And it was like this panic letter from one of the NAACP lawyers talking about Groveland. And I'm like, what's going on in Groveland that there's so, you know, this urgency and danger? And I looked it up and I found this case that was very similar to the Scottsboro Boys case in Alabama where these me- young men had been accused of sexually assaulting a white woman, which was like the, the most explosive thing you could do in the Jim Crow South. And it was just extraordinarily dangerous. They they faced trial. They were convicted. Thurgood comes down, argues it, gets it overturned in the Supreme Court. And then the sheriff starts to kill the defendants. And it was like one of the most bizarre stories that I've ever come across, like this sheriff taking the law into his own hands, basically. And so that was really what, what I decided to get involved in Devin LaGrove because I hadn't seen anybody had written about it yet
0: what an incredible opportunity you created right there just by having an interest and imagination i mean i always i always preach that i mean that's incredible story and then you want to poll prize for that yeah and i also know you are a photographer too is that correct? yeah I'm, I'm looking at the cameras
1: in the background i thought that was going to be one of the common things yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> i i'm a collector i collect anything and everything my office here is uh, my my wife would call it a junk collection i'd call it an art collection so let's get into Bone Valley. This, sure. this, oh my God, I already know I could talk for days. I had a good friend of mine, uh, Carly Rowland, who actually has an amazing podcast called Marginalized Murder, about Ooh. a serial killer in Illinois, uh, potentially 51 women uh, all strangled since 2001. Anyway, Ooh. incredible podcast, check it out. But yeah, Carly, will. Carly says to me, Andy, you got to listen to Bone Valley. It's the best true crime podcast out there. Wow, and I had been meaning to listen to it, and I finally got around to it. I didn't even tell her I was going to listen to it, and I—I I literally finished it like in two days. Um, wow, I just—I just could not wait. The storytelling was phenomenal. Um, mm, I could not know. wait for the next episode. You had so many uh, interesting people you spoke to, but I really think you know there's a lot of true crime out there, but there's not many people telling stories. There's a lot of people regurgitating articles. Making fun of things, drinking wine, and that's all fine and dandy. Yours was really a story with a purpose that tugged at you know your heartstrings and uh you know, I've been around the block with true crime. I mean, my law practice has been the last twenty years, primarily representing Chicago police officers, believe it or not, yeah. so I have seen both sides of it and when I listened to that first episode, Scott Kupch gives you that business card. Could you have ever imagined that you'd be sitting here today, where you are at?
1: No, I, I, that's a really great question, and I just, you know, like I do get people who talk to me about stories. You, you know what it's like? There, it's like cases. There's so many of them out there, and you just get a, You get an email, or somebody talks to you, and you know, it's overwhelming. You don't really know where to go. You sort of feel like you need to look into it because somebody, you know, approached you. Uh, But this was unique because it was a judge. And I remember I went to dinner that night with a bunch of public defenders. And I said, guys, let me ask you something. This judge just gave me this card and this is what it said. And they passed it around the table and they were kind of looking at it like a judge said this, like they're, they're not supposed to do this. And it got to one of the public defenders from Polk County where this case took place Know, but it was 35, 30 something years ago. And I remember he said, I know this case, you should call him. And I, that tipped me off that something was wrong. Like this guy was saying, I know of this case. And yeah. And that's how I got into it. I just started talking to him about it.
0: And, you know, I was actually, I graduated law school in 1987 and then I moved to Orlando, Florida, right out of law school. Um, right there. and I was, I was living in Orlando, Florida when Leo Scofield was convicted. I've driven through Lakeland, Florida a hundred times. Yeah, And so when is the first time you know you decide to kind of check it out? When do you think, hey, maybe I'll do a podcast about this?
1: Well, that's a really great question too, because I had originally my intention after I started looking into the case, and Judge Cupp told me to read the transcript, which I did. I definitely saw something there, and I I said, you know, maybe this is a situation where I'm kind of in between books that I'm writing. I could maybe go down and. Spend a few months and just sort of write a a, a long feature story about this case because I thought it was interesting, and you know right away after like visiting Leo in the prison and just hearing him talk, I remember coming out of there and I, I had not been a big podcast fan at that point, but I listened to a couple of them, and I remember just coming out of there with Kelsey and and Kelsey was listening to more of them, and you know we just sort of said what about a podcast like. You know, the, the, Leo's a great storyteller, and the other people we were meeting had really, you know, really compelling stories. And they were, it was so much different than what I'm used to, is just writing quotes on paper. I was hearing them and hearing the emotion and and the the pain and you know the distress and the desperation. I was like, this just sounds too good. And so that's where we
0: decided an article. I don't care how long the article was, it could have never ever come close to what you did with a podcast because you need to hear the voices.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And you know, when it's kind of similar, I had been representing a guy named Chester Weger, convicted in 1960 of this national news story that Star Rock murders, served over 60 years in prison. And I decided to finally just do a podcast kind of for a similar reason. It's a way to tell the story, yeah. uh, take a deep dive. It's another way to more effectively tell a detailed story. And what I liked about Bone Valley I'm not a huge fan of these superficial uh let's just regurgitate things half the time they don't even know what they're talking about. Um, you really and I thought I thought you actually were very fair. Like I would have been much more like can you believe this? Yeah. Like, like you you really were I thought very measured. Um, I went back and listened to a couple of the episodes for the second and third time and you said something like well you know I think the the case of Jeremy Scott's making a little more sense to me than Leo Schofield's like, yeah, uh, that's a a very polite way to put it. Yeah. And so, um, and then how did you meet Kelsey? How did she get involved with it?
1: Well, you know, I was working on a book before that and Kelsey used to work at this library at the Columbia University. She handled all the oral history while she was a student. And so we met and I said, you know, look, I, I need some help. I need some research help. I got like three different projects going. Do you want to do any like research in your spare time? And her, she was saying, "Well, I'm, I'm graduating, you know, so I'm, I'm not going to have this job for long." So she was interested, and I think that was the, you know, I in the past I'd worked with older researchers who were based in New York. They just can't pick up and leave their family and go to Florida for for a time like I can. Uh, but Kelsey could, and so I was like, "Well, that's the number one job requirement. I need somebody down there who's willing to go to Florida and and work on this with me." And she was totally into it. And so she became like, she started out as a researcher, but her arc, she like really progressed into interviewer, journalist, and she became the co-host basically, her and I sharing it. And it really reflects the work we did together over these four plus years.
0: Well, shout out to Kelsey. I thought she was an amazing sidekick to you. I love when she'd be like, just open the goddamn letter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no She's setup. Like- just open it. <laughs> Read it. Jesus Christ. Like, I mean, yeah. there's so yeah. many just genuine <laughs> moments. I love, I, one of my favorite parts- is her interview of Jerry Hill, who I wanna talk about in a minute. And I love how, he, how she said she was so nervous but it kind of disarmed him. And she's like, can I interview He's like, well, uh, let's, and he's so kind of like, well, let's see, uh, go ahead, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll see, you know? Right. Um, and <laughs> we're gonna talk more about him. But mm-hmm. here's what struck me. I say this from somebody who's been around the block and back many times. I'm not naive, I'm not one of these persons who thinks everybody's wrongfully convicted. Some are, some aren't. I call them like I see them. Every case has to be judged on its own facts. But here's, here's the thing that, I, that was just so powerful to me. Not only hearing Leo, I thought Leo was very authentic and I believed him, but Jeremy Scott. Oh my God. I mean, I'm sorry, but anybody who's fair, okay, who's open-minded and fair, your phone call, with your interview with him, when he first tells the, uh, the Joseph Laverre story, okay, mm. and he tells that in such a, what's the right word? In such an authentic way. Yeah. And there's always little phrases that stick out. What stuck out to me in that, in that part was when he talked about the car, um, he said, the car slid. Yeah. The way it went over the tracks, the car slid. Yeah. Uh, and then it's it's going to blow run like Yeah. The way he told that story in the moment. My experience and I've seen plenty of liars. People that fabricate generally have a very simple story. Mm-hmm. There's not much detail to it. There's not much context to it. The way he told the Joseph Lever story. I was like, "Holy shit. This guy is real." And yeah. then he transitioned into the Michelle story, yeah, and it was more of the same. And I'm sorry. I mean, you know, I'm not here to dissect every single piece of state's evidence, but I will say this: I found Jeremy Scott's voice to be powerful, and I don't think it's very uh, feasible or credible to say he's making it up. I, I, I just no way
1: you you're so right about that and i'll tell you why i'm i'm glad you said what you said and i really appreciate that because you know we were very careful we went through all his interviews that he'd done with investigators and lawyers and at one point when he was denying killing michelle he walked these investigators through the story and he could not keep it straight it was just like you said he was trying to do a real simple story not do any detail but he kept like saying that so and so was in the car and then he changed it to somebody else and a lot of the things that he was mentioning, you could just tell he was lying. Uh, when he sat down with us, all the remorse that the state was looking for from Leo Schofield, it's all in Jeremy. He's there. He's not saying this because he cares about Leo. He doesn't know Leo. But I think he got a lot of, you know, he felt like this was the right thing to do because the state ha- had the wrong person in prison. And when you hear his voice crack, when you hear him talking about that car sliding, oh. Like, you could physically – it felt like you were with him. He's doing the body movements. By that point, Kelsey and I had gone over all the police reports and all the witness statements.
0: I get goosebumps now hearing you your telling. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: I know. It was just – he was it, – it felt like we were in the car with him. He was describing the way it slid, the way it hit this one car, ricocheted off, and then hit the pole. And, I mean, if you look at the diagram of the crime scene, it's exactly the way it happened. He didn't have access to this stuff. I, I had a real hard time getting access to it. You know, mm-hmm. it took appeals and Freedom of Information Act requests. There's no way this stuff wasn't, you know, mentioned in the trial or anything like that because I didn't know who he was. But everything he said in that Levere killing was accurate. It all matched
0: up. And then the hat—he's talking about the black yeah. hat that he unsolicited brings up, that he said belonged to his cousin uh, Jason Scott, he had yeah. his name on it. Um, the way he, you know, said, you know, run, it's gonna blow. He didn't want people to see his face. And the whole thing, there, there, there was when I heard that, yeah. I was like, there's no doubt in my mind. This guy is telling the truth about this. And then yeah. it just transitioned into Michelle's story. And I thought, I thought the way he told that story was very similar and powerful. In the moment, authentic, kind of matter of fact with emotion, not, not rote. I mean, mm. you know, and I mean, when he just goes through it and even little things like um, he's talking about the knife and he said, oh, it comes in, it comes in twins, and I yeah. took one of them little, little weird details. Like you're not going to make that up. I that's mean,
1: exactly what I think, you know, you know, just, I
0: mean, it's too specific, you know? Yeah. And you know, my, my overall point is the way he told the story. Like I said, I, I just think anybody being open-minded yeah. is going to say, holy shit, yeah. this guy is telling the truth. Was that your reaction when you first heard him?
1: Yeah. I mean, we didn't know what to expect going into that. It took so long to get this interview. We didn't really, when we planned out the whole series, we didn't think we'd ever actually hear from him and he was just not going to be a voice on the show. Um, and then, you know, when he finally agreed to be interviewed, which was really getting kind of late, you know, we went in there, we didn't really quite know what to expect. And, you know, we thought when all the cops and investigators interviewed him, he's always handcuffed to the table, and this time they're letting him in with Kelsey and me and nobody's there watching. I was kind of
0: surprised when I heard that, frankly.
1: Yeah. And yeah. I was like, I don't think the new warden like knew him very well. Cause he just transferred there. And I don't, yeah. I don't know what happened there, but it was actually worked to our favor because we just treated him like a human being and just, mm-hmm. you know, said, what, is there anything else you want to tell us? You know, is there anything you want to say? Cause we're here for your story. And he just relaxed and you could feel it. I mean, he just, everything he was telling us. I mean, I didn't, I, mean, I couldn't catch him in a single lie. And there's parts he couldn't remember, um, which I think is really common. You probably dealt yes. with this, but yes. people who kill, they get you right to the point. And then afterwards, they get really vague about the actual act. Because I just think to to actually say that about yourself and what you did is just too traumatic. And so he doesn't quite get to that moment. He says, I lost it. I killed her. I stabbed her. And then he starts talking about what he did with the body. You know, He doesn't want to dwell on that. And that was a common thing we found. Through, through the Laverre case, too. He didn't want to really talk about shooting someone. Uh, he said, I pointed the gun. It just went off and you know that kind of thing. He's very vague about it. But that makes sense. I mean, that's the yeah. kind of thing when you throw pictures of an autopsy at someone and they have a reaction like that. There's a reason they have an action reaction like
0: that. Yeah, I, I thought you did a really nice job of humanizing him. I mean, hey, this guy's done some terrible things, right? He's committed some horrible crimes. Um, and I'm not defending any of that, but I will say this. I mean, it's a more complicated issue. This guy grew up in a messed up situation. I thought his humanity came through in your interview. He's talking about, what did he say? Sleeping with dead bodies? Like,
1: yeah. Like that's my punishment. You know, he's
0: clearly tortured by this. He, it was emotional hearing him, you know, what kind of gets me is like the state of Florida. Why is the first version gospel? Right. Right. The first version of course is a denial. That's, that's no surprise. Right. Why is it then when somebody changes their mind and actually wants, you know, to kind of like release it, why is that now, you know, like, like the second version can never be the truth. It's like, oh, he already said that yeah. he didn't do it, you know? Right. I mean, it's just like- So now everything he says cannot be true because, yeah, you know, yeah. like, that's not how it works, you know? No, no, you know, and um, so I want to get into a couple details that you brought up that I thought were powerful. The ten dollars, obviously, I thought was a strong piece of corroboration. If she had thirteen dollars in tips and you know bought some gas and three dollars of gas, he took. Why would he say he took ten dollars? I mean, you know, he could have just said I took some money. He could have said nothing. Does he even know fundamentally that she had called Leo on the phone?
1: I don't think he knows that 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 um, she was talking to Leo. I, I don't think that he just said that she was on the phone with someone.
0: How does he get that right? I mean, she. We know that she calls. Leo from a phone, right? Okay. That's part of his story. She's on the phone talking to somebody. Okay. I mean, like that's just an incredible piece of corroboration right there that he wouldn't necessarily know. Like, it's not like he said, oh, I just happened to run into her on the side of the road or something. You know, he's got her
1: on the phone. Right. No specific thing that can be checked, you know? Yeah. And and you could say, well, maybe he Got the newspapers and stuff. I don't think he did. He barely reads. He, you know, he's no. It's no. not accurate. But
0: I and you know he's familiar with the area, like you talked about, which I thought was super powerful. He talks about covering her in wood. Maybe he would have known that. But here's one. I always say this in my cases. There's always something very small, a little detail that is innocuous, that turns out to be huge. And. I'll give you one that I kind of found. Okay. I was poking around just a little bit uh, trying to prepare for this. And I, I came across on the internet a brief. It was called, let me find it here, The State's Response to the Court's Order to Show Cause. This was January 31st, 2017. And it was a state's brief. It had a bunch of exhibits on it, but it summarized some of the trial testimony. Okay. And in summarizing the trial testimony, when I read this, I put a question mark. What it said was it said the this was when they found the car. The doors all were locked. Okay? And I thought, "Oh. That just seemed weird to me. Like the doors were locked." I just made a mental note of it. You know, I didn't I just thought that was a little bit weird. You know, I mean, okay, the doors are locked. Well, then I was listening to your podcast and he says he left the keys and he locked the doors. And I was like, holy shit, like that completely jives. There's no way you're saying you locked the car doors as the way to embellish your story. Yeah, You're not making that up. It's a meaningless fact. That to me, although it's a tiny, tiny little point, it's a huge point. Yeah, It's just a huge point. You're absolutely right,
1: and honestly, there was a there was a lot of those little moments, and not all of them got into the podcast. But I'll tell you one that didn't, which I always I loved. We just never could find a place to put it for some reason. Um, but it was one of the calls that Jeremy made with his grandmother when she was. You, you heard part of it at the end of episode five, I think, mm-hmm. where he's talking to his grandmother and he's like, "Grandma, they're coming after me." You know, they're, they're, it's about a dead girl, and you know, remember where we used to live, that kind of thing. You know, the, the, obviously, when the police came in, they told him what had happened and they gave him some information. And he says something to his grandma that's so I think is just so telling. He says, "Grandma, the police said that the, they found blood in the trailer," and that's that's what had me so confused. Like, right. because the police, know, you know, the police yeah. at that point, you know, they, yeah. they think, you know, that that's where the facts are in a trailer. And he's like, what? There's blood in the trailer? No, no, no. That's not where it is. So he tells his grandma, he's confused by that. Those are the little things that you pick yes. up. There's like, no way that's going to happen like
0: that. Yes. That, I mean, exactly right. And there was another thing. I'm glad you brought up the phone calls with his grandmother. This, this document that I just referenced that I saw online, mm-hmm. it actually attached some transcripts of the phone calls with his grandmother. Yeah. And I didn't realize this until I read this. So when he is talking about stealing stereos, he's talking about doing it with friends, not by himself. Cause he says, I'll read you a couple of quotes. He says, only way I could think of it is because me and a couple other guys, when we used to see cars on the side of the road, we used to, you know, get in them and, you know, steal stereos. And then he says again in the same call, because me and a couple other guys, and then he talks again about how they, he used to do this with, with a couple of his friends. And I thought, yeah, they probably had a car, and they're driving down I-4, and if they see a car stalled on the side of the road, this is not that situation. How's this guy, what, is he walking on I-4? No. So it doesn't even fit this whole modus operandi of uh, stealing stereos with friends. Yeah. Uh, doesn't even fit here.
1: No, he, he, he tried to. Explain that to the investigators. And you, you, would, you would love it if you like those little details because he's trying to say that he didn't do it. He just stole the stereo. And he says, So then I, where the car was parked, I went up to this gas station and I drove up there and they have a little trash can there. He keeps mentioning the trash can. Like, why would the trash can be in your memory unless that's the place you put the knife? But, he, you know, that's the thing he remembers at the gas station. Like, I went up to this little dumpster and that's where I turned around,
0: you know? Yeah. We mentioned Jerry Hill. Uh, Hearing that part, oh my gosh. It was hard to listen to. And I like the way Casey said it. She said Kelsey said it. Uh, she said, you know, hearing it in person was kind of like much, much worse than she was expecting. I mean, Jerry Hill, you would have thought you were at the parole hearing for Ted Bundy. Like, like we can't let this psychopath out. I mean, you got a case where there's no forensics tied into the crime. You got credible evidence. At the very least, you've got a. Holy shit, we might have got it wrong situation. And, and he's acting like it's Ted Bundy, a guy that you know, that we're 100 percent sure committed these murders, you know, psychopathic killer, right where he belongs. I, I just can't believe there's not a more tempered like, "Well, you know, yeah, maybe we got it wrong. You know I mean like, how yeah. can you say it that way?
1: I I honestly don't know, but their first instinct is to just resist it and fight it and destroy everything Jeremy Scott says. If they had put half the effort into destroying Jeremy Scott's credibility and just look into him and ask him, I think he would have confessed, you know, he, he, he was there. But they didn't want that. They, he Jeremy Scott ser- served a specific person. They just had to destroy his credibility, and and you know just keep calling him a thief. When your you, you're, this office has prosecuted him twice for murder at this point, and they're just saying he's a punk and a
0: thief. It just doesn't make sense. It's not sincere. Well, I mean, in parole, you know, I this this is so similar in so many ways to my Chester Weiger Star Rock murder case because uh, Chester only got parole after being incarcerated for like sixty years after. He only got parole after his former prosecutor died, a guy named Tony Raculia. Tony Raculia would show up at every parole hearing and be like, Chester Wiegers should have been, you know, he got a break of his life when he didn't get electrocuted in 1960. You know, and when he finally died and he wasn't there to kind of just be the voice of the state, Chester got parole. But here's my point. At the very least, you have to, anybody has to acknowledge the fact that, hey, we might have got it wrong. Okay. At the very least, like we might've got it wrong. We know that there's no forensics tying to this guy. Nobody, no witnesses put him there and he served over 30 years. So give me a break. I mean, you're not going to vote parole on that. I mean, it's just, I've seen this so many times. It's just frustrating. And I, I'm preaching to the choir. I know. Yeah.
1: No, but you know, like the, 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 the criticize him for being a litigious defendant, you know, like, he did his direct appeal. You're goddamn
0: and, right I'm a litigious defendant. Right, I'm going to try right. everything I can to, get, to prove my innocence.
1: Right. I was like, see, think of yourself sitting in jail and, and just maintaining your innocence the whole time. And then they find fingerprints and then they, the fingerprints identified to a killer. What are you going to do? Just sit there and go, well, that's bad luck. No, you're going to file an appeal. And then he becomes yeah. now a litigious defendant. You know.
0: Well, what I found powerful was that he never expressed remorse. You know, I had a client, Cleve Heidelberg, who I got out of prison after 47 years. Never expressed remorse. Never said he did it because he didn't do it. Right now, what happened was Cleve Heidelberg was up for parole the same day as Chester Weger, who I didn't know. Never heard of Chester Weger, Never heard of the Starve Rock murders. Front page article the next day in the Chicago Tribune: Starve Rock killer denied parole, and he says, "I'm not going to admit I did it because I didn't do it. I don't have any remorse." You know, and I'm like, "This sounds like Cleve Heidelberg's twin brother." Yeah. And this is what drew me to Chester Weiger. But the same thing with Jeremy Schofield. I mean. The fact that after all those years, it's like, no, I'm not going to admit to killing my wife when I didn't do it. I think there's power in that. you know. I, I absolutely do.
1: Yeah, especially when it's hurt him at every stage. I mean, like, you know, he, if he just expressed remorse, he was a model inmate. You know, all he'd have, he just said, I can't dishonor my wife's memory by saying that. I'm just not going to make that part of the public record. It's easier for me to do the time than to live with that lie. Um, and so he won't do it. I mean, he could have been out of prison decades ago if he'd had taken that second yeah. degree you know murder plea. He would have been out back based on sentencing back then, and he had no prior record. He would have been out you know decades ago, but he he won't do it um and, and that that is telling that has to count for something you know
0: One of the big kind of counter arguments that I've seen is. There was no blood in the car. Now, me personally, I, I agree with the way you discussed it on the podcast that he, the initial stabs, were probably likely in the car. He does say in his interview that she fell out of the car. Okay, so I think it very well could have been exactly like you kind of you know said that you know he stabbed her you know however many times, a couple times. She got out of the car and he stabbed her many times in this fit of rage that you probably don't even remember. So, the fact that there's not all the blood in the car to me is not troubling. I think it could be completely consistent with what he said.
1: I, I think so too. And, you know, also, if you, if you look at the, the, the autopsy and the description of the wounds, he, she stabbed like multiple times in the back and then in the, in the front. And so, you know, he, he describes her as coming out of the car, like falling out basically. And he comes around and he says, I dragged her the rest of the way out. Um, and that's where all her blood was found outside the car you know, I asked the guy who actually did the forensic, you know, testing, he didn't remember this case, which tells you a little bit about central Florida. It's like, there's so many of these kind of cases <laughs> yeah. in Florida that he didn't remember. Yeah.
0: Which dead but, body in the lake, the one from yesterday yeah, or the one from exactly. last week?
1: But, you know, I said, well, in general, I'll just ask you a general question. Could you imagine any situation where a woman is stabbed in a car and there's no blood found in the car? And right away he said, was she wearing a jacket? And- You know, his explanation was a lot of times you do a stab. It's not like the movies where
0: the blood starts gushing out,
1: you know, sometimes it just captured inside the jacket. That's where all the blood was found in her jacket and on the ground. I mean, it was pretty, to me, it was pretty obvious.
0: You know, I'm so glad you just said that because I have actually, on a couple occasions, tried to retain blood experts for that very reason to say, oh, you would have expected to see a lot of blood here. and There's not. And both times the expert said to me, blood, you know, blood pattern experts said, no, oftentimes there's not blood, not much blood. It's just yeah. it doesn't have to be like you said, a Monty python, you know, right, uh, right. you know, blood just gushing out everywhere in the car. And people just expect that and want to see it, you know. I wanted to ask you about this downy bottle that was back in the hatchback area. Was that there was was that Michelle's blood on that bottle? Yes, that
1: was definitely identified as Michelle's blood. It was.
0: Yeah. And so I think that's also got to be something that gets put in the Jeremy Scott column. And my explanation, I mean, my kind of thinking about that is we already know he's back in that hatchback area, right? Because his fingerprints are on like the, um, whatever that document was. was yeah, it, uh, it was a
1: receipt for some rentals. Yeah.
0: yeah. So he's back there. Yeah. And, and so I'm thinking, so how does her blood get on this Downey bottle? We know he's back there. I think there's a very, very high chance there's blood on his hands. Okay. Yes. Because he's stabbing her 26 times, and I just thought, well, gosh, that sure sounds like he accidentally smeared that downy bottle. Didn't know it. I didn't see pictures of it. Is it? Is it small or?
1: Yeah, it's a pretty small smear. I mean, it's just it's probably like the size of like a pinky. You know, just like a little blood that just like there.
0: See, See? and he wouldn't even know he did that. No, he wouldn't. But if if you take the flip side, let's just play devil's advocate. Yeah. And Leo wrapped up Michelle on the back of the trunk, dumped her body out. You know what I think is happening in that situation? Everything in the hatchback's getting tossed. It all it's all going in the dumpster. The downy bottle, the whatever. I mean, like you're going to be meticulous you're not you're not leaving anything back there
1: yeah it didn't make sense it didn't make sense and where they found the car like where if if that was leo and his father where were they going like why do they feel the need to get rid of the car like it just doesn't make sense and it you know yeah. coincidentally breaks down you know
0: well yeah i mean the way he talks this is another point where i thought his storytelling was so authentic um when he talks about she she put the car in drive he grabbed the gear, shift and put it in park. I thought that um, was very, again, it's a detail that I just saw no reason to make it up. It seemed so kind of from the heart. Uh, I was curious if you ever talked to a mechanic or something. <laughs> I, I did see documents about like the flywheel was broken or something. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe it had nothing to do with the car breaking down, but I was like, I don't know, maybe. You know,
1: this is how crazy we
0: were. This didn't make <laughs> it into the
1: pocket. We talked to three separate mechanics. Two of us told us what that you know, throwing a moving car in a park was a good way to damage the flywheel. Two, really? Two of them said that. The third one we talked to, and these guys were really smart, and they said, it's possible, but here's what I think happened based on the other information in there, like how the car started up and turned over, but it wouldn't start. These guys were like professors of automobile and they they just they don't believe that the flywheel was what caused it. They said this is a junky car. That's definitely would have been a problem, but they thought it they thought it was probably something like a blown gasket. And yeah. and they did say that it was a, a major leak in there. So we we decided, because it was kind of split, we just didn't feel comfortable really addressing it totally. But Jeremy addressed it. He said, you know, I threw that car in a park. That's what messed that car up. And like, that's all we need to know. Because, you know, in other murders, he's stolen a car and headed straight to where he's going on this one. So mm-hmm. it made sense.
0: His story made sense to us. The other thing I got to bring up um, that really... Just makes me crazy. Is the premonition okay? Ugh. I, 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 I. This to me is like a no-brainer. It's just a no-brainer. Uh, you know, they Leo and his dad they discovered the body three days later. Right. If they had discovered the body in two minutes, in some weird spot, okay, maybe three days later, and then after you discovered the body, to make a remark like, "Yeah, I had a premonition," or "God drew me here," that is the most meaningless piece of of dialogue i can imagine and i just yeah. i just can't believe in the appellate oral argument that that judge is bringing that up like it has no significance to me at all
1: it really doesn't it it's so frustrating because it's like the kind of thing that a jury hears and when you have a prosecutor who's just like his entire closing argument is practically about this premonition you could just see it's like being used to smear him now they make it sound like, oh, he woke up in the middle of the night and said, I think I know where the body is now. Yeah. God just told me. Like that's not what happened. He it was a search, you know, the all the families were were searching. He he was the one that found the body. And then he said this stupid thing like, God led me to the body. But he only I, said it after he found the body. You know, you know what?
0: Know? It's the kind of thing I would say. I say yeah. stuff like that all the time, like the law of attraction or something drew me to this. Yeah. I don't think there's anything even weird about it. I I, no. I I I mean I'm not a, the least bit surprised somebody would say that I just I yeah. just found it shocking that it had carried so much weight throughout the years. Yeah, I know. And it kept getting brought up, you know. Always. I wanted to piggyback on one other thing you said, which is how hard it is to prove your innocence. And when I was going back and doing a little bit of research about kind of his his uh, Leo's court history, I came across. A couple opinions earlier that I was kind of blown away by. I mean, there was one, he's seeking DNA testing of fingernail scrapings and hairs. And the state of Florida objects and says the DNA testing would not exonerate Leo. And as to the fingernail scraping, it would be inconclusive. I was like, are you kidding me? It wouldn't exonerate him. And, and who are you to say it would be inconclusive? That got reversed. But my point is, the trial court said that. I thought that was a stunning opinion. And then he brings a motion for post-conviction relief alleging newly discovered evidence, which is the fingerprints. And the trial court denies that motion, saying the fingerprint results were not newly discovered evidence and would not have produced an acquittal upon retrial. And it got reversed. And the court said, no, it's newly discovered evidence. Yeah. I was like, "Oh my God, like, how hard is it to win in Florida? I yeah. mean, my goodness, what do you got to have?
1: <laughs> it is uh, yeah, there's definitely like a home court advantage, and you know everything stayed in Polk County pretty much, and so you know a lot of these judges are coming from the prosecutor's office. I mean, I'm not trying to cast dispersion on that, but it, it's a common thing that happens in this case. The judges before Leo are like working with the prosecutor's office too, you know, like before, and so that that was always like a thing like. You know, this finality that needs to be preserved, um, you know, have to respect the jury's decision. And it, it's like, well, this is something extraordinary. You have fingerprints that were never identified at the time. Um, both sides agree these are legitimate fingerprints. It's Jeremy Scott. And then Jeremy Scott ultimately confesses in detail to this, and they're fought every step of the way.
0: I was looking back at a little chronology I wrote, and I didn't realize that Jeremy Scott's fingerprints. Like they matched those in, I think it was 2004. Yes. Oh my God. Okay, okay, so let me do the math. Is that, that's 19 years ago? Yes. Okay, holy shit. Right. 19 years, we've had these
1: fingerprints. Jeremy Scott had been acquitted in, in, in his first murder trial in 1986. He gets acquitted. Um, the, the investigating detective, Richard Putnell, is the same detective in, you know, who's handling the Leo Schofield case. Why wouldn't he just say, you know what, we, there's some known murderers in the area. I know one of them particularly who's out free because he got acquitted, and he lives not too far from where the body was found. Um, do you think maybe we could just do a manual comparison and just run it against Jeremy Scott since we, we know he's not in prison and he's out on the streets in the same area? It was never done. Or if it was done, we don't. You know, I don't I'm not going to go that far. But for some reason, they didn't make that connection. So yeah, it didn't show up. They didn't have the AFIS fingerprint identification system, but they could manually compare it to people who lived in that area who were known known to be
0: violent. Why was that never done? Well, and I thought the way it's supposed to work is, I thought like if prints get entered into a law enforcement database, I thought they're like automatically checked with AFIS like every so often, like once a year or something. Like like there should have been a hit automatically. Yeah, um, never was. No, and I thought what was also outrageous was the fact that there were six hairs. I guess hairs found in the car or on or near Michelle's body that were cataloged they were never tested and here's the crazy part about that they got destroyed okay so here in chicago uh you know all evidence in a murder case is preserved i mean it's just it's preserved and you never know what's going to happen down the road and here's the thing about those hairs in the 1980s we couldn't test them for dna but you know what now we got advanced mitochondrial dna testing hell we could test those hairs now in my Chester Wieger case, I found, there, there was a hair found on one of the women's fingers. I submitted it to Bodhi Technology. Uh, this is just last year. And they could do mitochondrial DNA testing on that hair, and you know what? It excluded Chester Wieger. Ugh. So that hair evidence should have never, ever been tossed. It's vital. And going back to one of your points about the prosecutors, uh, I'll kind of maybe say what, what you didn't want to say, which is. Um, you know, the parole board was two former prosecutors, a former chief of police. Here in Illinois, they try to make these parole boards a mix of, you know, people that have worked for the state and people that work for the defense. You know, maybe it's a public defender. Maybe it's a criminal defense lawyer. You got to balance it out a little bit. Um, I actually just filed a motion in my, my Starbrock murders case to disqualify the special prosecutor now because they're not doing anything. And I found a great law review article. I'll send it to you. It's 2017. Oh, see it. It's a law review article about prosecutors have an inherent conflict of interest. And it just talks about, you might not even know you have it. You know, you want to advance in your office. You want to get reelected. You want to kind of preserve the victory for the team, even though you weren't the prosecutor. So there, there's all these things at play. And I have seen this firsthand many times. There is such a reluctance on prosecutor's office, even prosecutors who work for a supposed conviction integrity unit or something like that. There is just a real, real reluctance to really dig and to try to get to the truth. Sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's just an inherent bias. But I think that until that changes, and I don't know if, if, how to combat that, it's very difficult, very, very difficult.
1: Yeah, I mean the thing that always struck me, and I I'd be curious to hear what your opinion of this is because we didn't really delve into this. We just stated it as factual. But you know, the guy who tried to send Leo to the electric chair a couple of years later is also the guy who tries to send Jeremy Scott to the electric chair for another murder. He's now charged with doing the investigation on Jeremy Scott in a murder case that he also got the conviction of Leo Schofield. So is right. that like a conflict of interest? Like. This guy is really going to want to overturn one of his prior no. convictions? No. Right. I mean, that's right. why he did such a small investigation, closed it
0: right away. And I've had cases now. I, I've, I'm dealing with this now with my Star of Rock case. I'm dealing with, I dealt with my Beef Huddleberg case. I had, prose, I mean, these were cases that were, you know, half a century old. But yet, the prosecutors today are still trying to preserve the victory of the old office. Like, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's just part of a team. I mean, there's just not like, like, let's take the flip side in the Adnan Syed case, you know, the serial podcast, you know, he wind up, he wound up getting exonerated because the Baltimore district attorney's office and the public defender's office worked jointly to investigate the case for like a year. They just, they did DNA testing, they interviewed witnesses. They said, Hey, let's collaborate and let's, let's investigate and see what we get. You know, I mean, with Florida, and it's the same thing happening to me now in Illinois with, with Chester Wieger, I mean, there's not any interest in investigating. There's not any interest in like, let's turn over every stone. Let's open the kimono and see what we can find. Oh, no. It's like, no, he's right where he belongs. Right.
1: You know, and that's the thing, like the, the state attorney, we asked the state attorney, Jerry Hill, like, why did, why don't you have a conviction integrity review in unit? You know, he and he, his response was just like... You know, we don't need those. We get it right. That's for Tampa and Orlando and Jacksonville, the big cities, they have problems, but we we get our stuff right. Like, really? I mean, when I always say this, like when an airplane falls out of the sky, there's an investigation. You want to find out what happened, maybe what went wrong. You don't, don't want it to happen again. Same thing with, you know, a person going in for routine surgery dies on the, uh, on the table. You know, you want an investigation. You want to find out what, what happened. How is it that, you know, prosecutors, their work cannot be reviewed? It can't be looked at because they don't make mistakes. We know they make mistakes. I, I just
0: can't fathom that kind of thinking. And you know what what I find incredible is, you know, in, in unless you've got like clear-cut evidence uh, that somebody committed a crime, uh, you know, that these you have prosecutors wanting the death penalty, you know? Yeah, like, right. you know, like you got a case like Chester Weger was a confession-only case in 1960 when we didn't understand there were false confessions. And they're saying this guy should go to the electric chair. You got Leo Schofield who could have been killed yeah. In a case where there's no forensics, and I always say, every case, let's start with the forensics. I always start with the forensics. And here, what do the forensics show? There's Jeremy Scott's fingerprint in the car. Okay, now what do we know? He's a killer. He lived nearby. He took his girlfriend to the area. I mean, like- yeah. I I mean, mean, like, like, what am I missing and how the hell is Leo Schofield still in prison? Please, can you tell me, (laughs) can you answer that for me, please? That's
1: the whole premise of our story. Like the question, like, why is Leo Schofield still in prison when ABC, Jeremy Scott? And that's the question we set out to answer. Like, why? Because it's a post-conviction story, really. You know, it really is about like the state just doubling down and saying,
0: you know, well, uh, we're gonna wind down here. I, I I could talk to you for days. Yeah, um, I could too. I, Andy. Maybe maybe really we'll great. continue the <laughs> con- conversation. Yeah. But where does it go from here? What are your thoughts in terms of where does what what's next?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, because Leo got through that parole hearing, that he didn't get what his attorneys were asking for, which is immediate parole. Which we were told that's very unlikely in the state of Florida. But they did give him 12 months, and he got transitioned to this place called the Everglades Reentry Center. And it really just prepares inmates for freedom. And so he's in there with like a bunch of old guys who are not troublemakers, who are having served decades and they're just getting them used to life skills to get out. So he's in a very safe environment. Um, He's not going to stop unless he's fully exonerated. Yes. Um, Yeah. And so that's going to be the plan. I mean, the the lawyers were always like liberation, then exoneration. That was their plan. Um, You know, and I think there's enough people, myself included, that just feel like the state of Florida needs to exonerate this man and just make this right. And I'm encouraged by it because, you know, that book I wrote, Devil in the Grove, you know, that came out in 2012. And, you know, maybe like seven years later, because it started to catch on and people were reading it, um, the state finally did exonerate the Groveland Four. It took 72 years, but they finally cleared him. Um, you know, Leo's still alive and he's got life left in him. And this needs to be done sooner rather than later. I think it's pretty obvious since the story has come out that you know Jeremy Scott is Michelle Schofield's killer. I just feel like everyone I know who listens to it and hears the two men talking about it and hears the evidence feels that way. And there's a lot of powerful people in Florida who've been writing to me saying, you know, we want to help. This is wrong. And so I, I am encouraged by it. Florida does have a tendency to correct some of its wrongs uh, in the past, where I think other states just sort of brush it under the carpet, don't want to deal with it again. So yeah, it's embarrassing. I hate that my job is to sort of go in there, and find these kind of stories, and and beat the hell out of people for it. But I also want—I'm proud of Florida for doing the right thing, and I think they are going to do the right thing with this eventually.
0: In, in the Groveland case, what was the vehicle to get the exoneration like? Was it was that like was it like a uh, gubernatorial pardon or like executive clemency or what was it?
1: That's interesting. They started out with a with a pardon from Governor Ron DeSantis, who said like. When he was campaigning, he said, this is going to be one of the first issues I deal with if I win. And you know, true to his word, on the, I think it was the second day in office, he did it, pardoned wow. the Groveland Four. Okay. Um, but that was only a pardon. Obviously, guilty yeah. people can be pardoned. The families were like, we want exoneration. Um, so the, the FDLE as part of the pardon had to reinvestigate it, and they couldn't find anything. And it landed in the lap of a state attorney in the original district where this happened, the circuit. And he just said, you know what? I can't just go back to these families and say there's nothing to do. There's no path to exoneration because we're talking about posthumous exonerations and it's just a little more complicated. And he called me up and said, you know, the only thing that can help these, this, these families is some kind of new evidence. And, you know, we went through this. I like, spent like months with him, like working through things, riding around in trucks, going look for missing evidence. I could never find the, the state's evidence from the original trial. And uh, last summer I got a text from him. It was two summers ago with a picture, and he found the evidence in a different courtroom. Um, wow. And this was the, these were the original pants that the state had held up and said, we've examined them. That's a semen stain. This is the man who did wow. it. Wow. He did a DNA test like in one day, and they said, there's no human stains on this pants. Oh and my now God. now he had, yeah, so it became evidence of prosecutorial misconduct. Holy They falsely cow. represented it. So that, it took a miracle in a lot of ways, but.
0: That's amazing that that evidence was sitting like in a dusty courtroom that nobody knew about.
1: Yeah. I look so hard. You know,
0: they don't let me go back there and look around, but I would have. (laughs) Oh my God. Well, I think, you know, uh, and I've done this, you know, this is the reason I, I had my podcast about the Starbuck murders. I think you've got to use these storytelling vehicles to shine a light on these injustices. It's a great way to reach an audience. It's a great way to tell the story, do a deep dive, get into the details. You couldn't do it through a newspaper article or an op-ed or even a book. Like I said, I'm sorry, but if you listen to, anybody who listens to that Jeremy Scott episode, uh, Dear Mr. King, uh, episodes 8 and 9, I'm sorry. Case closed. He did it. Not only by his story, but all the other circumstantial evidence, the pieces of the puzzle, they all line up. I really hope Leo gets exonerated. I hope he gets justice. Uh, kudos to you and Kelsey for shining a light on it in a Truly remarkable storytelling way. Um, Because it could have been done. You could have just done the podcast and, you know, it could have been still told the story, but not the way you really told the story as a storyteller. You could tell that you are a writer. And so I just want to tell you how much I enjoyed it. And I really hope everything works out for Leo. I really do. And if there's any way I can help, let me know.
1: Well, let's stay in touch about it because I, I you know there's there's other things I, I'm happy to talk about and
0: show you along the way because you're really fascinating to talk to about this stuff you know one obviously direct way is if if I don't know if it'd be the state's attorney's office or the governor's office would do an exoneration or if they would need new evidence so you could always try to find something new. maybe Jeremy Scott gives you some new details maybe you uh i don't know i mean you know i'm sure you're I'm sure the lawyers are all have thought about this a thousand times over but there, I don't think the fat lady hasn't sung yet. I, I think there's still, there's still time. Uh, I still think justice is going to get served. What, what hit me about the parole hearing, though, and I could tell, yeah, like when they voted, he's going to get parole in 12 months, you know, when it's up. Okay. But you know what? I, I didn't want to, like, it's like, yeah, but every day is precious. Every hour is precious. It's easy for you and I to say, oh, hey, buddy, you're going to get it in a year. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that, you know, you want me just to spend another 365 days here. I mean, right. It was hard to even spend
1: a year like that. Like no yeah. would want to spend a year like that if you.
0: It was just heartbreaking that that you know there couldn't have been the recognition that this guy should be released today. Um, but I think that day's coming. I'm so glad my friend Carly told me about Bone Valley. I'm so glad I actually listened to it. Thank her for me. <laughs> I'll be eagerly awaiting bonus episodes. I'll be eagerly awaiting any updates. I look forward to a happy ending. Uh, he deserves it. And I I say that from the bottom of my heart, from somebody who, like I said, I, I, I've i seen both sides of this. I'm not one of these persons like everybody's wrongfully convicted. I'm, right, or, I'm right. more in the middle, so.
1: Yeah, um, this one's pretty obvious, I think.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, and what's crazy is it's obvious, and where's Leo right now? He's in prison, yeah, so. Right. That's what makes it more urgent, I guess, right? Yeah. Well, keep up the good work. Tell Kelsey Thank you, Andy. How you really enjoyed it. And let's definitely stay in touch.
1: Really appreciate it. Great talking to you too, sir.
0: Yeah, likewise.